Welcome to episode 383 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government, and we're about to express views that neither our institutions, nor our clients, nor our families, friends, uh, pets will agree with. But nonetheless, it's going to be a, a very entertaining program this this time around because we've got some great talent. Tatiana Bolton is back, a policy director for R Street's cybersecurity uh, team. Dmitry Alperovich, co-founder and chairman of the Silverado Policy Accelerator, Mark McCarthy, who teaches technology, law, and policy at Georgetown Law, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the host and chief provocateur for today's program. Uh, Jumping in, we actually have, it appears, a breakthrough on the much-discussed and widely bipartisan but still in trouble cyber incident reporting legislation. It now looks as though the Intelligence and Homeland Security Committees in the House have more or less agreed on the language that they want in time to get it into the National Defense Authorization Act. Tatiana, what did they have to do to get agreement? Uh, So, well, that's a great question. I mean, they've been working on this for a long time. The the work of the Cyberspace Solarium Commission, I think, definitely pushed it in the right direction. We did a lot of work on this. We put in a recommendation and a legislative proposal. I think what's ended up in the in the legislation, including a 72-hour reporting requirement, as well as a board that will oversee sort of incidents that sits within CISA and stands up a new office within the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency to oversee all of this, coordinate with the private sector, and, and give subpoena authority to CISA in order to address any, any incidents of non-compliance with the reporting requirement, I think will be a, a step in the right direction. Now, it doesn't cover everything, but I think that it's, it's much better than what we have now, which is basically voluntary reporting, which has proven to be completely ineffectual. So it, the people who are subject to this are federal contractors and critical infrastructure providers. Correct. Right? And they have to report cyber incidents, breaches, essentially, yes. whether or not there's personal data involved. So this is really a straight breach law, much more responsive to the national security concern than to the privacy concern, although privacy stuff is going to get picked up in it. And as you say, subpoenas. Dimitri, what's your view of the compromise they arrived at? Well, there's very little teeth in this bill now. The original Senate Intelligence Committee bill, the Warner bill, had significant penalties for companies up to uh, a portion of their revenues that accumulates for any daily breaches of of the 24-hour requirement that they had. And even though this bill has a 72-hour requirement, there's really no penalty other than the fact that you'll be subpoenaed by the government for the information that you are going to provide anyway voluntarily. So, so you basically can me. wait. If you, don't, if you don't comply at all and they don't catch you, then you don't even get a subpoena, right? Exactly. If they don't know, then, then there's no penalty whatsoever, even if it gets discovered later. So it seems like a lot of the teeth that were in that original proposal are now. And you know, the, we will see if it passes because this bill still faces huge opposition. And I can't emphasize huge enough from the DOJ and the FBI because they don't like the fact that the information only goes to CISA. They want to be in the loop and and they're objecting so strenuously to this that they even had in the press conference last week on the indictments of ransomware actors, the attorney general 
comment on the fact that this bill should be passed and that the reporting should go to DOJ as well. So as well, they, they, they really object to the idea that uh, CISA has any role in this. They think that the FBI could have handled cybersecurity just fine with a handful of agents and a lot of press releases. That's, that is such dog-in-the-manger behavior. Right? But I, I, I think the result of that was that the legislators, basically, in order to minimize opposition, gave K Street practically everything it wanted. Yeah, I think this is a huge win for the industry. If it passes, I still think it's got a long way to go in part because of the DOJ opposition. But in many ways, I think this, this has been watered down significantly in terms of the benefits um, to the, from what this bill was originally going to provide. I would agree. Yeah. I, 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 would, I yeah, would agree that it definitely needs stiffer penalties. I, you know, we've, we've been fighting for this legislation through the commission for the last 18 months. And like, like Dimitri said, the opposite, but I, you know, I think that including the DNI and the AG and the national cyber director in sort of periodic reporting, as well as reporting to the house and the Senate was obviously what uh, they were able to include in order to try and get some of these people on sides. You know, I think as with all sort of broad cybersecurity legislation, um, that we've seen, it's not exactly what we'd prefer. But I think that at this point, we take what we can get and then strengthen it as it goes further. I think if we were trying to put 24-hour reporting requirements and including some of those different penalties, this would have had no chance of passage in the NDAA. Yeah, so I think the... Go ahead. There is one thing that I thought was really fascinating and quite funny in the bill, and, and that was the definition of a cyber incident. So it goes through all the things that a cyber incident uh, would include, including an attack on critical infrastructure. And then it has an exception. One of the exceptions is any event where the cyber incident is perpetrated by a United States government entity. I saw that. That was amazing. I was like, what the hell are they putting in there? So if you know that the hack has been perpetrated by the U.S. government, you do not have to report it. Well, that's a relief. Well, thank God. Great. Exactly. All right. So that's a, 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 a very detailed and, and long act. The other act, which President Biden signed, is like a page long, Dimitri. Uh, and I think it's, it, its lack of, its brevity reflects the, just how little it actually does, because I, I, as I read it, it tells the FCC to do something the FCC was just about to do anyway. Well, no, the FCC, so th- this act, of course, allows the FCC to, or requires the FCC to no longer approve applications for networking equipment that they deem poses national security threat. They've already declared that equipment for Huawei and ZTE falls into that category. But the FCC was really lobbying hard for this bill because my understanding is right now they can um, not authorize applications where federal government funding is. And so if, if you're getting paid as the tel- uh, regional telco, with federal government money, then then the FCC has some ability to prevent you from buying Huawei CTE. But if they um, pay for it themselves, my understanding is that the FCC really did not have the authority to deny okay. it. And they had over 3,000 applications for Huawei alone. They were in front of them. So now all of those can be denied. And look, you know, at a broader uh, scope, you know, this is just part of the decoupling on technology that we are undergoing right now vis-a-vis China. Of course, earlier um, uh, in the year, we talked about how we have banned uh, China Telecom from having connections on U.S. soil. 
So this is long overdue and just a reflection that, you know, the reciprocity is something that we've, we've had to pursue for a while. The ability of U.S. companies to operate in China is becoming almost non-existent in terms of all the regulations that they now face from a cyber perspective, data residency perspective, and, you know, obviously ownership requirements by Chinese companies. And uh, it's, long, it's long overdue for us to, to make it more difficult for Chinese companies to operate here. Yeah, I, that's that's my sense as well. I was I was maybe I was fooled by the fact that the, the the law basically says, hey, you know that notice of proposed rulemaking you've already got out there, better finalize that in the next year, which feels like something they were already going to do. But I, you may be right that they were going to do it, but they weren't sure they could make it, which is entirely possible. I I, I can't help noting that the intrusion bill, the no, the notification bill, gives the government gives CISA three and a half years to issue regs. It says within two years, you've got to issue an NPRM. And then in a year and a half after that, you've got to issue a uh, final reg, which means President Biden is not going to see this on his watch, uh, assuming he doesn't run, which I kind of do. All right, let's go to Europe. Uh, Google uh, has gone to court to appeal the 2.8 Eight billion dollar fine that was imposed on it for uh, self-preferencing, uh, and there they lost in the I guess it's the general court. I keep thinking of it as the court of for- first instance. That's what it is. Was what it used to be called. Okay, uh, Mark, I uh, what did the court actually have to say? So it 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 said that Google's conduct was in fact leveraging. It was extending a dominant position in search into an adjacent market, the the market for comparison shopping services, but it was the bad kind. It it had anti-competitive effects and the behavior wasn't competition on the merits. And it asked, well, how can you tell it wasn't competition on the merits? And and then it wandered off into a series of factors. Google search traffic is key for the comparison shoppers. Google users stop only on the first page. The Google search results are irreplaceable for a comparison shopping service. The court also mentioned that Google's behavior was, in its words, abnormal. It was only possible because in the short run, it could favor its own service without any consequences to its general search business. And and this was possible only because users really had no alternatives. And Google also, the court also said that Google has um, an ultra-dominant position. They're like internet service providers, and they, they should face the same sort of neutrality constraints as the ISPs. And finally, the court said that uh, Google's conduct changed when it entered the comparison shopping business itself. So you put all that together and it wasn't really competition on the merits. In terms of anti-competitive effects, Google said, you know, we, we did all this stuff, but it, it didn't really cause the decline in traffic to our competitors. The court said, well, there was a correlation. You did that stuff and the traffic declined. And it said that Google had to come up with an argument why that correlation wasn't causal. And then it asked a further question, so what? Even if the you know, traffic did decline, how did that adversely affect competitors? And uh, the court said something interesting there. It said that Google's practices were, were capable of, of leading them to cease their activities. They were capable of reducing their incentives to innovate. And of course, it, it was capable of reducing Google's own incentives to innovate, because if you can not compete on the merits, you don't have to innovate. So it, it, it was potentially affecting the competitive structure of the market. And in contrast, the court said that the commission had just sort of been speculating when it said that Google's conduct would harm 
competition in the general search market, and it overturned that part of the decision. It kept the fine in place, and it didn't disturb the remedy. Now, the problem is that the remedy hasn't really improved the fortunes of the comparison shoppers in the past four years since it's been in place. So it's hard to see what, practically speaking, has been gained by the antitrust action, even if the court did uphold it. Nevertheless, it's well, two point eight billion dollars for the European Union. Well, there's, there's always <laughs> that, but but you know they're supposed to help the market out too. But I, I think is, this is still a, a model for what the Commission might want to do in other cases of self dealing, like Amazon or Apple, and and this certainly strengthens the hand of Vestager, the Commissioner for Competition, to proceed in those cases, and it also strengthens the case for the ban on self preferencing in the Digital Markets Act, which is meant to reform the European competition law. So, yeah, I I mean, I I frankly, I kind of resonate to the general view that uh, at least in this area, once you stop worrying about whether it hurts consumers, you're just off in some, you know, airy-fairy land. And it is sort of hard. The real question here, to my mind, is this is Google... By self-preferencing, it is putting a sort of dead weight on its uh, search engine. It is reducing the appeal of its search engine to users. Maybe only a little, maybe a lot. And this is a reflection, this is a kind of tying case in which they say, if you love my search engine, you're just going to have to take my biased uh, self-preferencing shopping recommendations. And at some point, if if people get tired of that, they'll go to Bing. It's not, you know, Bing is not terrible. And, and most of the other uh, search engines are perfectly adequate for 95% of the searches you do. And, and so I, what's really griping the European Union is the consumers don't care enough to switch. Yeah, I, I think that, that the court touched on that when it said there's something funny about competition in this marketplace because it could do this kind of favoritism of its own service. It wasn't really based on any quality difference. And it could get away with it in the short and, and on balance, Google benefited overall as a company because whatever loss it took in the general search market, it made up on the comparison shopping side. So uh, there really was an advantage for Google in, in doing this. But my worry is much longer term. I mean, how is, how is this going to help the, the comparison shoppers? How, how are the rivals going to really survive here? Right. And, and I don't see that the commission has come up with any kind of benefit uh, that would really speak to their interests. Well, maybe all, all the European Union wants to do is harass Google and, and every once in a while swoop down from the hills and extract another couple of billion dollars from them because things haven't changed. <laughs> I, yeah, that, that's an odd purpose for competition policy, but maybe that's what's left. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, more and more, the more I see of it, especially in the hands of the Chinese and the Europeans, the more I suspect. And frankly, uh, U.S. Uh, authorities are going there too. It's a regulatory provision and it, it's got all of the peculiarities and, and bureaucratic foibles of a regulatory. I, I think you're right. It, it really is regulation. And if the commission really wants to make that kind of regulation stick, it's going to turn itself into a digital regulator. Maybe that's the right answer. I actually think it is. But it's not the kind of thing that the I'm commission... I'm sure that's the answer they have in mind. <laughs> well, it, it, they're going to need a lot more money if they're going to do that, because they got a lot of cases like this they have to pursue. And they'll have to be the experts in each of those markets it's going to be it's going to be a tough job if they want to take it on okay 
So speaking of regulation and dominant network dominance and something that probably will be uh, announced very soon, uh, the verdict in Kyle Rittenhouse's prosecution for killing, for shooting three people and killing two of them uh, in Kenosha, I actually ended up watching and reading a lot of that trial. And I came away thinking, yeah, he's got a pretty good case of self-defense. And then I was astonished to discover that the reason I hadn't heard much about this is it was systematically suppressed by big social media. Twitter banned people who said, I don't think he did anything wrong. Even his lawyer <laughs> was was suspended for saying that he hadn't done anything wrong because it was glorifying violence, Twitter said. Uh, of course, apparently self-defense now is violence if it's done by somebody who the left doesn't like. Facebook, even worse, designated this a mass shooting or maybe even mass murder and so said you cannot search for Kyle Rittenhouse's name, removed his account, GoFundMe said his legal defense fund is going to be shut down because it violates our terms of service. It was like a, a systematic blockade of news from people who might have otherwise learned some of the details that came out at the trial that, that did make a reasonable case for self-defense. I don't know how it's going to turn out, but I was struck by how different the trial was from the impression you would have gotten from reading the mainstream media and the extent to which the mainstream media was not corrected by looking at social media, but social media suppressed any suggestion that uh, Rittenhouse had done the right, or had, had been in the right when he shot those people. And just to, to, to rub it in, the New York Times is going to, to give all of us podcasters the same bullshit lefty censorship uh, a regime that Facebook and Twitter now have. It wants podcasters to have to avoid any action that the, the New York Times disapproves of in terms of a, a praising, well, say, saying nice things about Rittenhouse or offering contrary views on the impact of the coronavirus and the vaccines. The New York Times is saying it's just su really surprising and shocking that podcasts can just go out and say anything they want when, uh, when Facebook and Twitter are, are, are acting so responsibly. Uh, and to my mind, that's like the first shot in a war to suppress podcasts. So uh, if you if you don't like that outcome, you better start subscribing to podcasts through services that are not beholden to the New York Times and the like. We'll see if that uh, if that works out. All right, that's and then enough of my rant. Here's a story that's kind of, you know, it's kind of a I guess it's the score is now 96 to 1. Uh, for the bad guys in ransomware. But the one is the most recent story. Dimitri, this, a fair number of people got busted, penalized, arrested, uh, indicted. A lot of them were, were from, from Revil. Uh, uh, and then a few others got doxxed because they were attacking Ukraine. Should we be drawing hope from this or is it just, uh, you know, random arrests? So you're talking about the action last week from the U.S. government against our evil affiliates. So these were not yep. members of the core group. These were people that were working with our evil and presumably with others to actually. So this is the, the if, if, if this were if this were like a drug uh, bust, we'd say they got the street dealers, not the um, the kingpins. Right, and street dealers that, that presumably can work with multiple cartels as well, who are not exclusive. 
So, but, but really important action. A number of people were arrested in Romania. There was one Ukrainian that was arrested when he crossed over the border to Poland. And they got some of the ransom back as well, $6 million ransoms that, that they've been able to retrieve. And I think most importantly, Treasury sanctioned yet another exchange that was used to facilitate illicit transfers. You may recall that a few weeks ago, they sanctioned the Suex, Moscow-based exchange. Right. This was another exchange that was run by the same individual that had upwards of 50% of its transactions that the Treasury Department deemed illicit. So that probably has the most effect. But the other thing that happened is that Arrival itself voluntarily shut down last month following right. um, several operations against it, one from Cyber Command, as Alan Nakashima reported in the Washington Post, that actually I'm going to have a, a write-up on this in Lawfare later this week, talking about how this may be the first time where we've had an offensive cyber operation being conducted against someone, and in real time we see the responses and the thought process that the, the target of that cyber um, attack is, is, is going through because our rival as a cyber command operation was taking place, was publishing on the underground forums, their perception of what was taking place and reacting to it. And what I found most interesting is that the cyber command operation, inherently disruptive operation designed to shut down traffic to their tour site where they publish um, on their blog the list of victims in order to try to extort them to pay ransom, did not actually cause our evil to shut down. But what it did get them to do is start looking inside their systems because they were trying to figure out how did Cyber Command actually do this because they essentially cloned the tour site, which meant that they needed the private keys to the tour site for it to work. And they realized that there had been an intrusion um, that, that, that had been done earlier, probably in the summertime frame by what Alan Nakashima is reporting to be not U.S. government, but a foreign partner that presumably collaborated with the U.S. government. And that intrusion is really what spooked them and got them to say, wait a second, they're looking for us. They're trying to uncover our identities. They're trying to potentially dox us. And we're out of here. We're going to shut down. So it's ironic that the cyber command operation, which actually blew the, the lid on what was essentially an intelligence operation by a foreign partner, actually caused the desired effect, which was got the group to shut down, at least for now. But in, in, in some respects, I mean, now you, you could also make the argument, and I just uh, uh, don't know if this is true, that by f pushing them to, to do a real scrub of their infrastructure, it interfered with an intelligence operation that was designed to compromise the identities of these guys, and we won't, we won't compromise them now because they won't be using a system that we're inside or that our foreign partner is inside. Possibly, but we, you know, at some point we do have to start acting to shutting them down, you know, watching and, and just issuing indictments, particularly against people that may right. not be in uh, territories that will extradite them, i.e. Russia, is not going to help us. So I, I'm actually pleased with the outcome if it got the group to shut. That's a good thing. What's also peculiar is that in the summertime frame, you may recall, that was another scoop from Alan Nakashima, the FBI actually got the private keys to the Kaseya campaign that our evil had orchestrated presumably from that intel collection operation by the foreign partner, and provided it to the, to the victims. And that did not cause the group to, to actually start looking inside there. Amazingly enough, they didn't wonder how did the FBI get the key. Maybe they didn't even pay attention to the Washington Post. Uh, yeah. Who knows? But uh, it was the attack that actually got them to start, to start doing it. So that's it. interesting because that, that you know, you, the, the FBI, when they were justifying hanging onto that key and not handing it out, said... 
look, this they they made allusions to the fact that they had to work with foreign partners essentially, and the implication was our foreign partners did not want us to expose the the fact that we had the key. May in fact mean that the foreign partners were afraid of exactly what finally happened. That if this was handed out that the, that the our evil guys would go back and find the intrusion and shut it down. And the irony is that that, that exposure didn't, but the, the later tour compromised. I, I wonder if our relationship with what I'm going to call the Dutch is as, is as good as it used to be after, after this. You know, Cyber Command often had a reputation. I remember this from my NSA days, actually after NSA, but working with NSA, NSA would try to exploit, say, ISIS sites in order to figure out what they were doing and where they were going and who they were. And then the Cyber Command would come down and just shut down the very same sites that the NSA was exploiting. Uh, and there was a certain amount of tension between the two organizations over when Cyber Command should blow stuff up and when uh, NSA should compromise it. Well, th- this is always the inherent action between intelligence collection. You know, the intel people just want to continue watching and never lose access. And of course, what's the point of watching and learning something if you're never going to act on it? The whole purpose is to inform decision-making and presumably take actors off the battlefield. So there's always a balance there, and we we may not always get that balance right, but the intel community is not in the right that we should never act either. Yeah. Okay, Mark, uh, this is a bill that I don't know whether we should spend a lot of time on because I don't know how how much of a chance it has because there's dozens of antitrusty kinds of bills floating around with bipartisan support. Everybody's got their own pet rock uh, here. But uh, this this one was interesting because it was going after algorithms and basically saying, for those of you who just want to read your social media posts in reverse chronological order, we're going to make the tech platforms give you that. Do you think this bill has much of a chance? Well, it'll, uh, two seconds worth of context uh, first. You, you got to remember that that critics seem to blame the algorithms for for many of the ills on on Facebook and yep. social media, and and you know they're they're trying to hold policymakers are trying to hold the the companies responsible for algorithms that that spread harmful material. I mean, there's actually a, a study that that Facebook did. It was revealed by the. The whistleblower Francis Haugen, Francis Haugen, when, when she you know provided access to this study that that Facebook had done on, on what happens when you do go in the direction uh, of chronological feeds, and 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 the study found that that the the users' engagement dropped dramatically. The users seemed less satisfied with the service, and and they they blocked or hid the other people fifty percent more often, and and it didn't do much in the way of reducing access to harmful material. So if you're going to do this... Well, except you, that people, people spent less time on the platform. Well, there's always that. But if, if you want to... And, and you know, the, I, there's something to be said for that, frankly. <laughs> well, yeah, but, but that's not the whole point. The whole point is to reduce access to the harmful stuff, not to drive people off social media. So, But you may want to do this as a matter of consumer choice anyhow. Give people a choice. Let them figure it out. Now, Facebook and Twitter really do offer these options already. But they're kind of hard to find, and and they revert back to the default algorithmic feed when the users log back on again. And uh, TikTok and Instagram, they have no algorithm-free feed. 
Now, this legislation might actually do a pretty good consumer service, and it's not the same as the legislation that uh, has to do with uh, removing Section 230 immunity when a comp company uh, amplifies uh, certain harmful material. The bills lodge enforcement with the FTC. They don't, they don't give the FTC any authority to um, come up with rules in the area, uh, so it's hard to see how they're really going to enforce it in any, in any serious way. Uh, does that have a chance? It's bipartisan and bicameral. I think it, it, given the, the consumer interest in this kind of thing, it might be the kind of thing that goes the distance on its own, but more likely it'll be combined with a larger piece of kind of content moderation legislation. It's gonna, isn't it going to have the same First Amendment problem that everything has? Same, I think not. If, I mean, if it, it, all, all it says is that you've got to give consumers an option, and, uh, and I, I, I don't think that that is such an affront to the... First Amendment that uh, that the courts would strike it down, and, and so I, I think it, it's got. To, I mean, some of some of the okay. bills do have those kind of problems. Let you know, Senator Klobuchar's bill that said the HHS shall define what accurate health information is. That pretty clearly has a First Amendment issue. But this one seems much more consumer protection than content uh, restriction. Yeah, I'm 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 skeptical of that. I think if to write the opinion that says. You do not have free choice about the algorithms, the, the way you present information to your users. Writing that opinion requires that you trample on a lot of, of editorial discretion that was yeah. defended by newspapers for 50 years. I, I think they may be able to distinguish the cases accurately. I mean, if anything, this is a case of compelled speech. It's not shutting you up. It's saying you have to offer something else. But yep. I think... A, an algorithm-free service doesn't sound like it's an affront to free speech to me. And if I may add, so, yep. you know, on all of these pieces of legislation that are touching on antitrust, from the cybersecurity perspective, I think there's also some not very well understood or possibly just underreported concerns about some of the specific text in those those bills, including Representative Cicilline's and Representative Scanlon's bills that either require interoperability with all third parties, regardless of safety or security concerns, or, you know, requiring or companies to to take down or or not a sort of prioritize their own their own offerings but in doing so cause cybersecurity issues such as you know not allowing pre-installed soft that is put on computers and phones for security reasons along with other provisions that can that can cause issues for for cybersecurity that I think we're just not talking about a lot. In fact, I put out a I put out an explainer on our site that talks about some of this. There's, you know, probably like 10 or 15 different provisions in all of the in all of the bills including Klobuchar's bill that I think might at a minimum need to be amended for some of these cybersecurity considerations. I think you make a yeah, good point, I, really, because, you know, um, unless you've got some sort of way of balancing the, the competitive interest in having interoperability with cybersecurity issues, the privacy issues, the content moderation issues, unless you've got some way of, of balancing those competing considerations, the, the interoperability provisions could do more harm than good. Yeah. Uh, and the only way you're going to have that, frankly, is if you have some kind of regulator sitting on top of the whole system making those kind of judgments.
You can't just throw it out into the ether and say, I hope it gets balanced somewhere else in the system. Yeah, well, and speaking of the regulators, one of the provisions also includes uh, a requirement for companies to go through the FTC in order to approve updates, which honestly is the, you know, the security at the speed of bureaucracy. It, now, it gives a it gives an out for companies. So, so is it, does it mean that, that Microsoft would have to go in on, on, on like the first Monday before the first Tuesday to get approval right. for and there's no way that they would be able to review and look at all of them, especially the, how quickly and, and how massively these updates get are done, not just from Microsoft, but if you take a look at all of the different apps and companies that provide digital content and, you know, or provide cloud services or anything like that, any minor, any updates that are minor that are wouldn't be considered imminent uh, danger would basically have to be run through the FTC. I, I, I have a big issue with that. I think at a minimum, the language should very clearly uh, identify specific things that need to be run through the FTC or just do away with that provision entirely. There's no way that the FTC has the bandwidth to review all of these or that they would review them in a in a timely manner to, to go towards what we've in the security community have been pushing for a long time, which is make the updates as fast as you know that they exist. So isn't this a little though like... Uh... Uh, Apple saying, uh, by the way, we're not going to give you security updates for your phone after 18 months or 24 months, uh, and you're just going to have to buy a new phone. Uh, this is, uh, the, uh, all of these companies have said, we've now integrated ourselves so deeply into your life and cybersecurity is, we've screwed that up so badly that we're going to have to continue to make massive profits uh, in order to give you these occasional updates that mo modestly improve your security. The, they're basically extracting from us rent because of such how bad a job they did securing the infrastructure that they offered us quote unquote for free. I mean, I can't speak to the I can't speak to the company's decisions on why they you know uh, why they offer updates or don't offer updates on certain software. Obviously, like there's a profit motive there. But you know, all my only point is if we're going to require only, if we're going to require every update other than one that is is exigent or threat to go through the FTC. I think that's just a bad, bad policy. We, we, we could be in trouble. I, I agree. I, I don't see how that works. All right. Let, let's, uh, the FBI took a lot of abuse because of a hoax email that went out from its website to in its name. Dimitri, I, that looked to me as though it was kind of an embarrassing, this was one step up from defacing their website as a, as a hack. Do you agree? Or do you think that suggests a more serious security problem? Absolutely. I think, I think there are three things that are important here. So one, this wasn't really much of a hack. No data was taken, as far as we know, no exfiltration of anything sensitive. This was a server that was operated actually by an FBI contractor, not by the FBI itself, that was used to communicate with state and local law enforcement partners. And it had a bug in the, in the website code that enabled the scammers here to send out emails from that server without authenticating them. So an embarrassing bug for sure, but really not a significant issue. But point number two is that this is truly poking the bear. These people might as well start printing out posters, wanted posters with their names on it, because the FBI is not gonna let it go. They're gonna pursue them. The oh no, because it's, right, it's, it's embarrassing. And, and the worst yeah. thing you can do is embarrass the Bureau. I, I agree. He would, they, what the Bureau really should do is say, Congratulations, under our uh, uh, bug bounty program, here's $3,000, but they're not. They're going to they're gonna indict this guy. <laughs> Absolutely. 
And point number three is if it can happen to the FBI, it can happen to anyone, which really highlights the, the true scale and nature of this problem. So in that sense, I think it's, it's, it's helpful for people to see that these types of hacks, uh, although this really wasn't much of a hack, but coding vulnerabilities can happen to literally any company out there. Okay. So we're going to try to buzz through a, a bunch of these things now. Uh, Mark, the, the states which I have had the most entertaining antitrust complaints of any of the antitrust litigation against Silicon Valley have updated their complaint against Google, Alphabet. Uh, what in a minute, what's new in the updated complaint? Well, well, in two seconds, this is an update to the the, the case about the ad tech market that was filed in December of last year and then updated in March and then updated again in October. This is the latest update. The problem is that the ad tech market is rife with this self-dealing. I mean, I mean Google yeah. has the dominant publisher's ad selling tools and it's got the dominant ad exchange and it's got the leading ad buying tools. And their their project Bernanke allows it to take advantage of these these overlaps. It's named, by the way, after Ben Bernanke because Google insiders seem to think that this program resembled quantitative easing. But here's how it's supposed to work. Suppose an advertiser that uses Google ads and has a low bid of like $10 per CPM. And suppose a different advertiser bids higher. He's got 12 CPM, but it uses a, a different a different ad agency, the Trade Desk instead of, instead of Google Ads. But both of the ad buying tools then route the, the advertiser's bid to Google Exchange. Now, look at this from Google's point of view. Google wants the lower bid to win because that lower bid uses its ad buying tool. Yeah. And because it's running the exchange, it knows that the $12 bid would win. And they doesn't want that because it's coming from a, a company using a rival ad buyer. Uh, and, and because it, it the, the lower bid uses Google's ad buying tool, Google is somehow able to adjust the lower bid before sending it on to the exchange and ensuring that it wins the auction, even though it's not the highest bid. And the result is that the publisher gets less, the winning advertiser pays less, and Google gets more. And the amount more is pretty interesting, $230 million in revenue in a year. For Google, that's like pencils, but it's still a lot of money. And, um, of course, the details of this project are not disclosed uh, to the publishers. This week's filing uh, just adds some more details uh, on how Google accomplishes this in its Project Bernanke program. It's it's impressive. It's impressive. It's this is this is self-preferencing at a very high level. This is Jeffrey Tubin style self-preferencing. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so a bunch of chip makers outside the United States got asked to, to report to the U.S. Commerce Department on the status of all their uh, backlogs and production plans and the like. Samsung, TSMC, and they're apparently coughing up data. Tatiana, why, what is this all about? And, and what does the U.S. think it's going to get when this data comes through? This is all in the bid to sort of secure our ICT supply. There's been, there's been numerous efforts by the United States to sort of identify weaknesses in, in either federal government networks in uh, U.S. industry. And now it's gone international because I think as anyone who is awake today in 2021 knows, supply chains are not domestic. They are international. So if we are to if we are to secure our ICT supply chain, I think the United States took the reasonable, completely predictable step of of trying to identify vulnerabilities in its international vendors. 
So most of these companies said said more or less, you're not the boss of me, but I'll voluntarily provide what I think I want right. to provide. So how much, you know, how much information that we really need are we going to get? I think that we're going to get probably a, a part. We're not going to get everything. Certainly, they're not going to hand over the keys to their kingdom, right? Like they're like they said that we're not the boss of them. They need us to the extent that we're on a huge market and they want to play nicely in the sandbox uh, with the United States, as they are mostly allied nations. So I and I think you know this is part of the to them. I think also part of their fight against China because I think you know in TSMC's case, I think they understand the risks and what might or may not happen in the next five years in regards to China. And so if they're, you know, I think that that's the question that's happening in, in the sort of Asian uh, countries, at least, who do you want to get closer to? Do you want to get closer to the United States? And if you do want to get closer to the United States, then I think this is one of the ways in which you can signal um you can signal that you are participating and engaging. They obviously aren't going to give up everything because, you know, you know, proprietary information, you know, their own strategic interests. And then also to be able to say to China that, like, you know, the United States doesn't own us. We still play nicely with China, too. I'm sure they don't want to get in the middle of, of that that fight. But, um, you know, I think it'll inform our decision making. And to the extent that it's helpful in our s- strategy, I think it's useful information. So, Dimitri, uh, is this this is this an argument for the Chips Act? Well, this is in furtherance of the Chips Act. Mostly, this is about commerce's trying commerce departments trying to understand the root causes of the current supply chain cr- crunch that we're undergoing, which is massive, and trying to get information on supply and demand, information on customers, information on production capacity from these different vendors. China, by the way, is vociferously objecting to this. They're infuriated. They think that this will provide information that will help the U.S. government target them with more sanctions against their own chips industry. But, you know, these companies appreciate that they had to participate in this voluntary data collection because commerce does have ability to compel them. Most of these companies have subsidiaries here domestically, employees, customers, so our leverage over them is quite significant. But really, one of the things I'm hoping that will come out of this is an appreciation from the Commerce Department of how much the supply chain crunch that we're currently experiencing is being exacerbated by scalpers and gouging. Sure. Common components that are worth, you know, mere are being uh, priced at 50 times what they uh, used to cost just a couple of uh, years ago. And most of that is because you have brokers that are buying multiple years of supply chains. And these are not the most sophisticated chips that you think of that go into your, you know, the drive the processors in your laptop or f- a phone. A lot of them are very common chips that are, um, voltage regulators, power converters, those types of things that without which you actually can't build any device, right? They're not the most sophisticated, but they're some of the most critical because they go into everything that uh, we use today. And that's where we have a huge supply chain crunch. Part of it has happened because of the weather-related events and fires that have taken place at at FABs. Part of it is due to the increase that has uh, taken place during COVID when everyone was buying up electronics, but it's certainly being exacerbated now. And I think that just as with the paper, the toilet paper uh, shortage that we experienced right after yep. COVID started, this is something that needs to be looked at because it's making the situation much worse. But on Except the this time, there, there really might be some evil genius cackling over all the toilet paper that he's cornered the market on. Uh, and it may be that we'll see some very uh, rapid fire antitrust actions against people like that in an effort to break up some of these backlogs in the market. 
Absolutely. But over the longer term, and this is what the CHIPS Act really is trying to address, we need to look at the information about the long-term supply and demand projections that these companies have over multiple years, which the Commerce Department did not request in this situation. And they're going to need that data. If they're going to get $52 billion that has been proposed in the CHIPS Act, which, by the way, is more than twice the overall budget for the Commerce Department. The overall budget is $26 billion. In fact, um, only about uh, $12 billion of that is discretionary budget. And we're about to throw $52 billion at them. They don't have the resources and they don't have the data on how it actually needs to be spent. So I think we need to task the U.S. International Trade Commission to do a study on what the demand actually looks like, what types of chips we need the most over the next 10, 15 years, where we need to allocate the spending. Is it on logic? Is it on memory? Is it on analog? What type of nodes? Is it the most advanced node? Is it the more legacy node? We just don't have any of that data right now. The U.S. government doesn't, and we desperately need it. Otherwise, this $52 billion is just going to go to waste. And if the, uh, and if yep. the BIS you know, surveys that they did a few years ago are any indication, we need to start soon because it takes like two years to get everything back. Yeah. my So part of this is fighting. I think we're fighting the uh, chip equivalent of the hog cycle. The fact is people don't pour the massive amounts of investment that you need into some of these technologies until there's a shortage that drives the price up. So we may just be stuck with a, a cycle in which this happens over and over again. We can try to minimize it, but I think we're just we're stuck in that because of the nature of the market. Well, All right. we, we need massive investments in this area. This is one of the top issues we're working on at Silverado. So if anyone in the government is listening or on the Hill, please contact us. We're We've got a lot of information and data on this. All right, great. Uh, I, I I highly recommend it. Dimitri has always been remarkably and sometimes distressingly candid about the world as he sees it, and you can't go wrong asking for his advice. All right, uh, uh, Elon Musk, I don't know what to say about this, Tatiana. You know, he said, to, let's have a Twitter poll about whether I should send sell 10% of my Tesla stock a... And everybody's kind of saying, well, was that a violation of uh, the SEC rules? It almost certainly was a violation of the rule that says before you tweet, make sure that your lawyers look at tweets that could move the market because it sure moved the market. And I, I'm pretty confident that no lawyer would have said, yeah, sure, let's, let's go with it, Elon. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Well, you know, speaking, speaking as a lawyer, he, the lawyers will make it back 10 times in litigation billings. So I don't think they're particularly bent out of shape either. Dimitri? Well, I, I just want to say that as someone who used to be an executive in a public company, I have to file something called a 10B51 plan with, um, so that I could sell my shares. That's what anyone who has inside information as an executive in a public company does. I had no idea that all I had to do was just post a Twitter poll instead of working with lawyers to submit such a plan. You see so, that? I know. You see that? All you had to do was go on Twitter, <laughs> yeah. Dimitri. What were you doing? Lawyers. What are it's they for? His plan. his plan is to have a Twitter vote. Uh, but to be fair, okay, so to be fair, he made the plan in like September. And so this was all planned out. I mean, he, honestly, this is just... Well, not, not all, all of it, it like right? 4.7, Some of it was... 4.6 billion of it. And then he sold another 1.2 billion theoretically because of the poll and is expected to sell another up to 10% of his holdings in the coming months. But it just, I mean, this is just Elon Musk being Elon Musk. Like, okay, one, the man is richer than God. And like, he's, he, like, he's, he's fucking brilliant. I'm sorry, pardon my language. He's brilliant. 
And I mean, he's <laughs> no, come yeah. on from from PayPal to SpaceX and Tesla and like I mean, what hasn't he created? Boring company, like I mean, the man's insane. So, but insane but brilliant. Yeah. And so, like, does he care about a fine? Even if he gets one when he tweets this stuff, no, he doesn't. Like, that's just like that. Like, like what was Mark just saying? Pencils to like like pencils to them. Like, this is pencils to him. Like, yeah, he doesn't care if he gets he gets fined. Well, I, I, and over the weekend, he got into a fight with Bernie Sanders. I don't know if you, you guys saw that, where he's taunting Bernie Sanders to sell more of I mean, stuff. Yeah, and I mean, like, he's just having a good time. I mean, like, when you're the richest man in the world, what can get you entertained? Apparently this. Yep. Okay, uh, just a couple more things. Uh, these are more than the nature of updates. A couple of uh, uh, episodes back, I pointed out that uh, Francis Haugen doing all this whistleblowing and uh, telling truth to uh, power about Facebook said, uh, well, and Facebook is going to end-to-end -end encryption so that they don't have to see all of the cyber attacks that are going on. That lasted one press cycle, and she retreated in a cloud of words and incoherence from that. And I said, you know, I think somebody had to have told her, you're not allowed to say that. And I'm struck by the fact that Politico had a really detailed article about how she was totally supported and coached, especially in Europe, which is where she made these remarks, by a group called Reset, which is funded by Omidyar and the Sandler Foundation, all very left-leaning donors who would have been expected to think that end-to-end -end encryption is Silicon Valley's gift to the world, and who basically said, you know, we're funding you, you can't say this. And it looks to me as though that's the basis on which she retreated into incoherence. So uh, I, I'm going to take a, 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 a victory lap for having said, I think she's been pressured, and it seems now there was a basis for pressuring her with, with this organization. And uh, little known, uh, when Kamala Harris went to uh, Paris, the U.S. joined the Paris Call for Trust and Security in Cyberspace, which I have said in other circumstances is basically just buying into the complete Microsoft platform for cyberspace, including uh, you can attack anybody but us uh, as an international norm. So after years of the Trump administration refusing to join the Paris call, Microsoft wins. And I, I want to now, we, we went many episodes without reviews to read, and now I have an embarrassment of riches, like four or five of them, but I'm going to force them on you because there's a theme to them, and they're all uh, five stars, so I'm happy with them. Uh, here's uh, Jeremy Bailey says, it's refreshing to listen to a show about current events where I don't often want to scream at my speakers about inaccuracies in, ex in describing our legal political system, since many of the other comments accurately describe the well-rounded nature of the discussions and the collegial approach to presenting opposing views. I'll just add that the show provides the China criticism and the Euroscepticism criticism that many people often unknowingly are missing from their podcast news diet. Yes, you absolutely have to have more of that. Here's another one from longtime listener, first-time caller. As someone who works in the weeds, this podcast makes me feel excited that people are thinking about cyber problems from a more Zoom perspective. Here's Nick Bao, who says, great overview of global news in tech policy. The host is clearly on the right side of the political 
political spectrum, but the guests usually balance him out. Uh, okay, Mark, Dimitri, Tatiana, that's a heavy responsibility that you've undertaken there. And then finally, uh, here's Don't Beg for Reviews, uh, who says, this podcast is must-listening for anyone interested in the laws and policies impacting cyberspace. While Stuart Baker is unabashedly conservative and hosts the show in the style of John McLaughlin, the panelists and other guests provide a broad range of ideas and interpretations of uh, current events. So uh, I think they've got our number, uh, and I'm really pleased to have all of those folks jump in to, to offer reviews. Thanks to Tatiana, thanks to Dimitri, thanks to Mark for uh, joining us. More comments, uh, you can send them to Podcast at Steptoe.com. You can leave a review, and as you can see, I, I read them. I want to thank Weissman Sound Design for our music. This has been episode 383 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you.